Good morning, everyone. Happy Lord's Day in the best season of the year. Okay, I'm excited about today. We're going to um, start Module 4, which is my favorite one because we're talking about uh, soteriology and the doctrines of, of salvation. So let's uh, go ahead and open in a word of prayer and then we'll get our Lord's Day started. Our Father, we have so many distractions in this world, so many things that weigh upon us, that burden us, that we carry things to pray for, things to uh, be concerned about, even now in our, in our nation. And, and sadly, we're not surprised by this, riots going all weekend long and protests by people whose minds are so darkened that they believe that good is evil and evil is good. And so, Lord, we are increasingly alarmed at how we don't belong in this world. We are very, very cognizant of the fact that we are aliens and strangers in a foreign land. And it makes us long for heaven more. But in the meantime, Lord, I, I really believe it makes us long for the church more. For our ability to be here together and to, to gather with one another. And so I pray that this Lord's Day would be pleasing to you and that we would uh, truly enjoy the gathering of your saints. We pray in Christ's name, amen. So today, what we are going to uh, look at is soteriology. Uh, and I, I, this is called soteriology part two, because a number of weeks ago, we did part one, which is sort of a special topic, uh, salvation in the Old and New Testament. And so if you uh, are wondering why we're starting with part two, that's why. So today we're going to look at the doctrine of grace, and just to, just as a reminder, what is soteriology is from the Greek word soteria, it means salvation. It is the doctrine of salvation, and I think it's a useful word to know. Now, there's no reason why uh, the wonderful regular church members shouldn't know theological words. And the reason soteriology is a wonderful word to know is because it encompasses all that we believe about salvation. And so... Soteria, uh, the doctrine of salvation. Uh, it's the, it's the, where we get the, the word Savior as well, by the way. So I want to start with kind of a broad overview. And if you're a note taker, I wouldn't worry about taking notes on this. This is just kind of something for your, for your information. I want to go through the historical views of the doctrine of grace, um, first of all. And uh, I, I'm going to go kind of fast. I just want to give this overview. Uh, first of all, there's the Pelagian view. This is originating with a British monk, Pelagius, who died in 419 A.D. Pelagians have a very high view of human nature. They didn't view human beings as being corrupted or tainted by the fall at all. Adam was a bad example, according to this view, but his sin in no way is imputed to us. We haven't inherited sin. That humans have the ability to perfectly obey God on their own, and God's special grace is not necessary. And, and you might say, well, nobody believes that anymore. There are a ton of people who believe this. The United Methodist Church, this is their official position, that humanity is basically good. So there, there are plenty of people who believe this. I have personally sat and listened to a, a man preach a sermon saying, whether you know Christ or not, you may make the choice to not sin at all beginning at this moment. Well, what's the point of salvation if you can make that choice? If you summarize the Pelagian view, it is that men don't need God's undeserved favor. We don't need grace because all men have the ability on their own to perfectly obey God. 
If you ask a Pelagian what is grace, they wouldn't say it's divine assistance. They would say it's external enlightenment, that we get grace through things like the Ten Commandments and the moral example of Jesus, that basically men can work their way to heaven on their own. Now, Pelagius had a doctrinal archenemy. He's a guy by the name of Augustine or Augustine. Both pronunciations are correct. Augustine argued for the universality of original sin and the necessity of grace to restore fallen humanity. And so that's why we withhold up uh, Augustine as a wonderful example of a, an early theologian. Then you have the semi-Pelagian view. This view asserts that God grants grace to those who strive for godliness, that mankind takes the first step toward God in salvation, and then because mankind has taken that first step, God grants grace to him. They would say that humans inherit moral and spiritual weakness from Adam, but they would not hold the total depravity. They would not say that uh, humans are unable to seek God. They would say that human beings have the ability to seek God and to do real spiritual good. Um, This perspective was common in the Middle Ages and uh, is now uh, settled into the Wesleyan and the Nazarene traditions and, and other traditions. It's still here. And interestingly, we could take the Roman Catholic view, which is basically semi Pelagian also. According to the Roman Catholic view of grace, grace is a power that assists a human response. The sacraments, they would say, are a means of grace. We hold the two, the Roman Catholics hold the seven, because you've got to have lots and lots of grace because you're, you're working hard toward your salvation. They would say that grace can be lost and grace can be restored. So in other words, uh, the moment you choose to die, you better choose wisely that you're in the midst of grace at that moment. And they also believe that grace can be supplied by Mary, the mother of Jesus. That is a later belief as the Roman Catholic religion has added belief after belief to their system uh, over the centuries. And then you have the Arminian view. Again, it's, it is uh, very, most similar to semi-Pelagian. Let's see if my little clicker will work there. I just flashed a light. That didn't help anything. If somebody could give me an assist, I need grace for the there we go thank you the Armenian view says that God gives special grace rooted in the work of Christ to all people and they would call this prevenient grace now this is confusing because there is a right definition of prevenient grace they have a wrong definition of prevenient grace what they say prevenient grace does is it takes away the effects of original sin and it restores free will, it restores free moral agency to the unbeliever. So in other words, the grace of God allows a person to, of their own free will, without the empowering of the Holy Spirit whatsoever, to choose God. It's the prevenient grace that allows the unbeliever to, and this is a big phrase with Arminians, to cooperate with God. There's a synergism. It's from a Greek word, ergos. It means to work together with God. And then they may believe in the gospel. We, of course, are monergists. We are a singular work, the work of God alone. And so the Armenians would say because of prevenient grace, all people exist at some point in a preliminary state of grace, that that is our default position as humanity, that we're in a state of grace and you have to get worse and worse in order to finally not be saved. 
They would say that every person has the potential for salvation. While they're born sinful, they're also born in grace. I don't even know what that means. How can you be born sinful and in grace at the same time? Um, But I want to point this out. When they say every person has the potential for salvation, what does that logically also mean on the other side of that coin? Every person has the potential to not be saved. Exactly. What does that mean for the cross of Christ? It means that Jesus rolled the dice, hoping that he died for somebody. That makes no sense at all. And they would say that God's grace can be resisted by man's free will. That man's free will is stronger than God's ability to draw. It sounds ridiculous when you say it out loud, but but entire systems of belief are built on this. Then you have, and again, this is just history, you have the view of, uh, let's see, I'm convinced this will work. Well, I'll need to ask for grace again. Uh, You have the view of Karl Barth. Um, It's it's not Barth, there's not really, you don't really pronounce the H. He was a Swiss Swiss Reformed theologian. He said that Christ's redemptive work is a victory over human opposition to grace. He says that, uh, that God's grace is irresistible and that all people will receive God's grace for salvation. So in other words, he sort of mixes uh, some beliefs here. Now, he never used the title universalism for his, for his view, but his position leads to universalism. Thank you. Um, the view that all will be saved, even those who reject the gospel. What are the implications of that? If all are going to be saved, why are we bothering? Why proclaim the gospel? I mean, there, it's beautiful weather for 18 holes of golf right now. But... Why would we bother? So that's the belief of Karl Barth, who continues. I mean, he died in 1968, but he is a huge influence uh, in the world of theology, even today. Thank you, Jimmy. Uh, This is being recorded. Nobody will ever know why I said thank you, Jimmy, at that moment. And we'll just let them wonder. Um, Then you have post-Vatican II Catholicism. Vatican II happened in the 1960s. Now they would say humans are weakened by sin, but we can still reach out to God with God's, with God's grace. So in other words, it takes God's grace for us to reach out to God. Again, I don't even know what that means. But post-Vatican II, uh, the belief system of the Catholic Church now is radically different than even before this because now they would say um, that God's grace extends to those beyond the visible church. That if you are pious and you are sincere in your beliefs even if they're wrong you're still under god's grace so you can be a you can be a sincere hindu a pious uh, buddhist they would say uh, that protestants they call us kind of condescendingly they're the separated brethren they kind of feel sorry for us that we're not in in their system and then you have reformed evangelicals that's you or it should be you. If it's not you, st- stick around for a while. It will become you. We believe in common grace and special grace. Common grace. God's undeserved goodness to everyone. Acts fourteen seventeen is very clear about common grace. That you, you get to breathe air. You get to eat food. You get to walk on an earth. Uh, you know, there, there was a time when the earth was completely flooded. There was no place to go. There will be a time when the earth will completely bur- be burned by fire. There's no place to go. And so the fact that even unbelievers can get up and take a breath and enjoy breakfast and drink coffee and go to work and enjoy all the things that God gave them, that is common grace. And then we would talk about special grace. 
Special grace is God's saving power towards sinners. This is effectual. It's effective. It cannot fail. Because by definition, if God's grace can fail, then it's not really grace, is it? We hold the total depravity that God must take the initiative in saving the sinner due to humanity's inability to save itself. I honestly don't know how semi-Pelagians, Roman Catholics, Arminians, how do they deal with Romans 3? There's no one who does good. No, not one. No one who seeks after God. There's none righteous. How do you deal with that? You just kind of have to explain that away somehow. And then we, of course, believe in election because the Bible teaches election. God's saving grace is given to the elect sinner. This grace is 100% effective and always brings the sinner to saving faith. Now, I, we won't get into election right now because we have a whole, uh, a whole talk on that. But just a little side note here. If someone says, I cannot believe that God would choose some for salvation and some for not, that is a position of self-righteousness that actually makes you more righteous than God. That's a really dangerous spiritual place to be because it it basically says um, that you're more compassionate than God is. And it also says that compassion is more important than justice. Would we do that in our system today? Well, more and more, yes. We would say, well, you should be compassionate on the wicked and you should put down those who are doing good. And that's how our society is turned around right now. But just that note on election, um, if you don't believe in election, you should really evaluate why you believe that you are more righteous than God is. Because that's what it boils down to. Now let's do a little more history now from the Bible. Grace in the Old Testament. And I just gave you a bunch of, uh, <clears throat> bunch of scripture references here because there's a misnomer in the church sometimes Hopefully not here, but there's a misnomer that the Old Testament is about the law and the New Testament is about grace, right? And yes, the Old Testament is about the law of Moses, but it's also about grace. The New Testament is about grace and the law of Christ. And so that's a, there's much more continuity than discontinuity. I'll just read some of these to you. Genesis 6, 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. It's a, it's a Hebrew word we would translate grace. He found grace. It's not that he went after it. The, the, the phrase, he found grace, it's like it, grace was placed in front of him to have. And he, he, he received it. Genesis 18.3, prayer of Abram, Abraham. O Lord, if I have found favor, grace in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Exodus 33.19, God said to Moses, I will make all my goodness pass before you and proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. How do you not come away with election from that, by the way? By the way, if you're trying to convince somebody who doesn't believe in election, don't start in the New Testament. Start in the Old. Because you're just going through narrative stories. <clears throat> Numbers 6, 24 through 26, this wonderful blessing The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be what? Gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. That's the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord doing all the work of kindness. Psalm 41, 4 rather. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me for I have sinned against you. Oh, how do you deal with sin in the Old Testament? By grace. Psalm 51.1, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. 
This is grace, grace, grace. I, I gave you some other, uh, other references there, which I won't read at this time. So why do we need grace? Well, I'll give you a few reasons here. We've mentioned some. The, first, the universality of sin. Sin affects all human beings. In some way, we have all sinned in a manner that's related to the first human being, Adam. Uh, Romans 5, 12 through 19 makes this abundantly clear. There's no way to avoid this. Now, you might say, well, how come some people are better than others? The fact that you're totally depraved doesn't mean that you sin in every way possible at every moment possible. It just means that you cannot possibly approach God. How do you, how do you make up for sin? There's no way to do that. You can't make up for it. Sin is universal. Every baby born is not born sinning, but born with a 100% guarantee that he will begin sinning as soon as he's able. The first opportunity, uh, what the Bible says, when he's old enough to know right from wrong. How about total depravity? This is why we need grace. In our intellect, unbelievers, we're not able to fully grasp and apply spiritual truth. Ephesians 4.18, 1 Corinthians 2.14. We're darkened in our understanding. This is why the people that you see in the news that say they're experts on human behavior and what the world needs are just spouting nonsense because they're darkened in their understanding. And you can't reason with them, by the way, because you can't reason with somebody who is by definition unreasonable. And so you can't use logic either. They need a spiritual solution. So we're totally depraved in our intellect. We were totally depraved in our will. We can't keep from doing evil. We can't help it. You can say to yourself as an unbeliever, I determined to do better. You know, Benjamin Franklin is famous for trying to boil down his own behavior to all the things that he could do to perfect himself. And at the end of his life, he just expressed his frustration. I can't do it. I can't do it. One of the smartest men to ever live in our country and he couldn't do it. So we're depraved in our intellect and our will. We're depraved in our emotions. Our affections and responses are poisoned by sin. Titus 3, 3. But there's a huge high percentage of murders that happen and literally a minute after it happens, the person who commits the murder is in disbelief at what they just did. Their affections, their emotions took over. We're depraved in our morals. Ephesians 4.19, we are immoral. And by the way, an unbeliever says, no, I'm moral. Then you ask the question, by what standard are you moral? Who's making, who is deciding what's moral and what's, and what's immoral because you always end up going to a, to a God. And we're totally depraved in our relationship with God. Sin has tarnished the creator-creature relationship. We now act and interpret the world apart from God. So we're totally depraved from every angle. There's no piece of you that can rescue the other pieces of you. Does that make sense? That there's, no, there's no savior inside yourself. We would also say that left to themselves, sinners get progressively worse, not better. Romans 1, 26-32 says that. Um, in fact, uh, 2 Timothy 4, 1 Timothy 4 rather, talks about uh, sinners who are seared in their conscience, that they no longer feel or sense what their conscience that God gave them is telling them. This is how you, you can brainwash entire societies into believing that classes of people should be eliminated from planet earth because you sear the conscience over time so that is kind of the 
history of grace in the Old Testament, why we need grace. Let's go back and be a little more specific about common grace and special grace. Common grace. There are common benefits to all mankind, and and I mentioned this briefly, but let me list some specific ones. Examples of common grace. God is good to everyone. Psalm 145 verse 9 says this. Luke 6.35 says this. Why is this important? Because no human being can accuse God of being evil toward them. God has been good to everyone. God supplies the needs of people. Genesis 27, Psalm 65, Acts 14. He gives rain. He gives food. He gives the things that we need. Every place on earth... You can travel at least just a few miles, even in our fallen world, and find water. Can you imagine if there are only two places to find water on the whole planet? He's given water all over the place. And by the way, our shortage of water, how much water is there still on the earth? Exactly the same amount that God created in the first place. With one exception, any amount of water we sent to outer space. And that's about it. You know, what's that? A few gallons. Every amount of water we have, water shortages are due to sin and sinful governments for the most part. And the fact that we live in a sinful world. So he supplies the needs of people. God upholds the laws and the processes of nature. Isn't it great that the sun comes up every day and the the temperature doesn't suddenly drop to 50,000 below zero? I mean, imagine that. We are, in fact, the the tilt of the earth is such that if it was tilted just a a degree one way or another, a lot of people on earth would fry and the others would freeze. He restrains the power of sin. We might say, boy, it doesn't feel like it. But can you imagine if every person sinned to the full extent that they want to? It's by the grace of God that the full destructive power of man's depravity isn't unleashed upon the world. By the way, what is the biggest restraining power of sin in the world? It's the church. Because the world is filled with Holy Spirit indwelt people who are restraining the power of sin. Why, uh, reason number 250, I believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. Because when the church leaves, the world goes crazy. God withholds judgment. Genesis 8, Romans 2. Louis Burkhoff in the Systematic Theology says this, and it's a very good phrase, a very good uh, quote here. It's due the common grace that God did not at once fully execute the sentence of death at the time of Adam's sin on the sinner and does not do so now, but maintains and prolongs the natural life of man and gives him time for repentance. What did God tell Adam? that The moment you eat from this tree, what will happen? You will die. And yet he prolonged that sentence for Adam almost by a thousand years. And for humanity, he continues to prolong that, that sentence. God gives government for the good of society. And I know we sneer a little bit at that right now, but better, better a, a not very good government than no government. What happens if suddenly the government disappeared? We, we'd all be barricading ourselves behind our doors and arming up, right? Because society would go crazy, which is why it is so important for, um, for us to appreciate government and particularly those on the front line of protecting society. This is why we love law enforcement. Because they're doing the work of God. You know that law enforcement is the only other person in the Bible called a minister of God? And I love that. God gives 
all people a sense of right and wrong with a conscience. Yes, their consciences are distorted, and for some, their, their consciences have become seared. But for the most part, there's a sense of truth and morality in the world. I, I have neighbors that live next door to me. Sweet people, wonderful people. I couldn't get them to church if I pay them a million dollars. I have tried every way I possibly know, and yet they have a very good sense of what's right and wrong in talking to them. Why? Because God's given them that gift. Now, I'd love to continue the conversation with them to to help them see where that came from, but it is from God. God allows people to do relative acts of goodness. Even unbelievers can help a person in need or come up with a cure for a disease. There's all kinds of good things. I've heard it said, well, Christians shouldn't support non-Christian charities. That's ridiculous. A non-Christian charity is doing a good work, finding a cure for leukemia or something like that. That's a gift from God, isn't it? It's a gift from God. So, of course, um, yes, you give to the Lord's work first, but um, I, I don't mind when I'm in the grocery store and somebody says, would you like to give to a hospital that is helping children for free? Absolutely. Happy to do that because it's ultimately a gift from God that we don't live in a society that just executes children that are sick, right? So common grace is is a fabulous way to point the unbeliever to the fact they live in a world that is given by God. God gives this wonderful grace, but it can be resisted. Isaiah 26.10 If favor is shown to the wicked, he does not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness, he deals corruptly and does not see the majesty of the Lord. That's a good warning to the unbeliever that all of these wonderful gifts that you have, what would would happen if all the oxygen from the earth was suddenly gone? Everybody has three to four minutes to live and that's it. But, But... The unbeliever can see these gifts and still reject God. So Isaiah 26.10 stands as a warning. And we should be very, very clear. Common grace is not salvific. It doesn't save anyone. So when an unbeliever says, "I I, I think God is saving me because he's been good to me. He's given me a nice job. I have a nice house. I have a wife. I have kids. I have lots of good things and they have come from God. That is not evidence of salvation from sin. That's evidence that you better run to the God who gave you those things in the first place. Does that make sense, that difference there? So there's common grace. I think it's good for us as Christians to remember common grace. Uh, what, what do we traditionally call a prayer before a meal? We're saying what? Grace. Because we're given these good things. How about special grace? Uh-oh. It was not the battery. Oh, there it is. Special grace. Let me give you a long definition here. And, and, and you don't have to remember this. It's just it's a helpful definition. Special grace is the grace by which God redeems, sanctifies, and glorifies his people. Here's what I want you to get. Unlike common grace, which is universally given, special grace is bestowed only on those whom God elects to eternal life through faith in his Son. Grace, if we want to put it in a nutshell, it's everything that God does to save and restore lost sinners. Everything that he does, that that encompasses grace. So could you uh, put some of the other aspects of soteriology under the broad umbrella of grace? I think you could. Is regeneration an act of grace? Absolutely. Is our faith an act of grace? Absolutely. Is our progressive sanctification an act of grace? Yes, it is. So it's everything that God does to save and restore lost sinners. 
what are some of the aspects of grace? I put a short list there. Grace is received through faith. Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. I want to be very precise in my wording here. Grace is received through faith. That may not even be the best wording. It's not that you had faith and therefore received grace. You received grace and therefore you have faith. And so the two go together. And some say, well, how much time comes in between? I don't know. Maybe none. But grace produces faith. Grace is the basis of salvation. Romans 3, 24 and 25. We are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. That's another good word to know. It means the satisfaction of by His blood to be received by faith. Grace is undeserved. Ephesians 2, again, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Is the claim to have a free will that can choose God a work? Yes, it is. That is the claim to have salvation by works. Grace is neither cheap, nor is it costly. It's free. What's the difference? Cheap means it didn't cost anybody anything. Free means it didn't cost you anything, but it did cost Christ. Revelation twenty two seventeen: the spirit and the bride say, come and let the one who hears say, come and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. There is no price. There is nothing you can do. There is no baptism. There is no good work. There is no even belief that I had a free will choice. There is nothing you can think, nothing you can say, nothing you can do. It is completely free. And not only are we saved by grace, we are to live by grace. Hebrews 4.16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of what? Grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, some may argue that speaking of an original salvation, drawing near to the throne of grace, I, I wouldn't necessarily take that position because by definition, we can't draw near to the throne of grace, right? But once we're in grace, we certainly can. Hebrews 13, 9, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. I think it's important that we not think of the grace of God just as something that's about salvation. The grace of God is what sustains us every day. His kindness and His goodness. We are justified by grace. Titus 3, 7, so that being justified by His grace. I love that past tense. The past tense justification blows Uh, Roman Catholic ideology out of the water because they believe justification is an ongoing process that you have to help finish. But the Bible is very clear. Justification is by grace in the past. And regeneration is by grace. 1 Peter 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ according to His great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So, those are some aspects of grace. Isn't that rich? Couldn't we just talk about this all day? Today's Sunday. Let's talk about grace all day. So, I said I'd come back to prevenient grace. Let me give you a, a better definition of prevenient grace. Prevenient grace is what allows me to not uh, wonder. There we go. Thank you. <laughs> the grace is given. I don't know what's wrong with this thing. Uh, prevenient grace. Now, <clears throat> this is where I, I can say this with a smile. I don't think there is such thing as a 100% percent 
saved Arminian. Now, if you stop listening to this right now, you're going to think that I'm just putting people down like crazy. That's not what I mean. What I'm saying is, I don't think there's such a thing as a saved person who is 100% Arminian. Why can we say this? Because you ask any true believer, did God have some part in your salvation? They will always say yes, of course. Well, I believe in free will, but God had some part in my salvation. And you see that that's a, we say it with a smile, that's a total contradiction, isn't it? But believers do believe that God somehow takes the initiative. Psalm 80, verse 3, Restore us, O God, let your face shine that we may be saved. Now again, the Arminian view says that prevenient grace is an action of the Holy Spirit that neutralizes inherited depravity and corruption in all people. Prevenient grace is, is supposedly going to restore all sinners to a place where they have the ability to respond to the gospel call. They would give some proof texts. John twelve thirty two and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. It is a relatively easy Bible study to show that when Jesus says all, he doesn't always mean every single human being that's ever lived. John ten sixteen and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Um, I've given some other verses there, supposedly proofs of uh, prevenient grace. These verses affirm that Christ's salvation goes, go beyond Jewish believers to include Gentiles. That's all they do. But they don't teach prevenient grace that neutralizes the power of sin. It doesn't teach that at all. On the flip side, the Reformed view, I'm going to read a quote from uh, Demarest in his book, uh, The Cross and Salvation. Prevenient grace as a soteriological concept refers to the grace that works in the elect to illumine their darkened minds, soften their contrary wills, and incline their affections toward Christ and his offer for salvation. That's what God does. We would put prevenient grace right in the same category as regeneration. It's something that he does. Now, let me go back to why would I say that there is no such thing as a truly 100% or truly saved person who is 100% Arminian. You know how I know this? Because they all pray for the lost. When you pray for the lost, what are you asking God to do? You're asking God to intervene beyond a human level, aren't you? What do you if you truly believe in 100% free will, even praying, Lord, let their free will kick in, What are you really asking for? You're asking for God to manipulate the situation to make their free will actually want to be saved. See that? You can't get away from it. So uh, we thank the Lord for our Arminian brothers and sisters. And when they get to heaven and find out that they were elect, they'll go, oh, well, that's pretty cool. But in the meantime, um, we would stick to the fact that salvation is solely of God because of his kindness, his prevenient grace, his grace that's given. And so, what, what is his grace like? Well, we talked about this a week or two ago, but we would say it is irresistible. It is effectual. How would we define irresistible or effectual grace? It's grace that cannot be rejected. That when God has chosen to save someone, his grace for the purpose of salvation cannot be ultimately thwarted or resistant, resisted. Now, that doesn't mean that humans that are elect can't resist the Spirit for a time. How many of you resisted the Spirit for a time? I would say all of you at some level. But their resistance won't prevail. It won't prevail. And I've heard it said, uh, you know, I don't want to be a robot. Any of you feel like robots? 
Right? Are you walking around? I must serve the Lord. I must serve. You know, we're not like that. You want to serve the Lord. But worse, and maybe less humorously, it said, well, I don't want anyone to force me to get saved. I do. Why wouldn't you want that? Why wouldn't you want God to impose his kindness and goodness to force you to go to heaven for all eternity instead of to hell? Would you rather go to hell saying, but I did it my way? That's what all the people in hell will be saying. I did it my way. It's very interesting if you did a little study of the rich man and Lazarus. It's a whole, whole other topic, but in Luke 16, the rich man who goes to Hades, the waiting room for hell, so to speak, that's very much like hell, that he asks Abraham from across the chasm of time, however that works, it's a story, but he asks Abraham for two things. A, would you cool my tongue that's on fire? And B, would you go warn my brothers? You know what he doesn't ask for? Would you get me out of here? And so we would say, uh, God doesn't send people to hell who don't want to go there. But when his grace is applied, it is always effective. Now, it is reasonable to ask, what is the relationship to man's will? We are created with a will. We are created to make choices. You didn't wake up this morning and say, Lord, is it your will that I get up? Well, maybe some of you did, but... You don't go through your day that way. Lord, is it your will that I go to the bathroom or brush my teeth first? You make choices all the time. So we do have a will. So what's the relationship to man's will? Grace makes the unwilling heart personally willing. That when you were willing to come to faith in Christ, it was a true, real desire, but grace gave you that desire. It awakens a deadened heart to be able to respond to God such that they know the gospel, they desire salvation, and that you're willing to repent. When you asked to be forgiven, when you repented of your sin, was that what you wanted to do? It was the cry of your soul, wasn't it? But God enabled you to have that cry of your soul. He wooed you. He brought you into the fold of desiring Him. I'll give you some scriptural support for this. God's grace causes his word to take root in the heart. Jeremiah 31, 33, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Who did that? God did. He inserted himself into the very heart of humanity to change them. God gives a heart to know him. Jeremiah 24, 7, I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord. Did you catch that? He didn't say, they will know that I am the Lord and then I will give them my heart. The order is important. They shall be my people. I will be their God. They shall return to me with their whole heart. Grace frees from the bondage of sin. Romans 6.18, and having been set free from sin, past tense, having become slaves of righteousness. Grace draws sinners to Christ. John 6.44, again, a verse, I don't know how Arminians deal with this. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him on the last day. How is that possible? Well, they would say, well, provenient grace says that everyone is drawn by God. That's not what Jesus said. He clearly made two groups, those who will come to the Father and those who won't. Clearly two groups. And grace imparts spiritual life to the spiritually dead. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. 
Isn't that a rich thing to just imprint on our hearts? This is one of my favorite things about being a pastor is I get to watch this happen over and over and over again. People who are dragged to church by a relative because it's Christmas Eve or are brought here because they happened to drive by and didn't have anything to do and they come and they hear the gospel and they sit in the back with a sneer on their face and six months later I'm baptizing them. And they're astounded at what? At grace. That, that is so much fun. You see that you see unbelievers walk through the door and you know you don't know what you're up against. You're up against the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you cannot stand. You cannot stand. Now I think we've gotten into this some, but I want to just return to some practical implications of God's grace. And I hope this is helpful to you. I guess we'll just call it and we'll uh, bury this. Poor little thing here. There we go. Thank you. I'm sure it's something I'm doing. I'm a techno idiot. So, what are the implications of common grace? I know we've hit this some, but I think Thanksgiving is a good time to talk about this. I don't think anybody here would say, I'm thankful enough. I don't think any of us would say that. So, here's some reminders. We should appreciate God's common grace and recognize it is coming from Him. It is completely spiritual. To say, thank you, Lord, for the fact that I have this snack. Thank you, Lord, that I had clothes to wear this morning. Thank you that I have these little things in life, the little extras. We should appreciate the beauty of the creation. If you see a sunrise or a sunset, the ocean, the mountains, animals, those things are good. They are created by God. I, I have a little doggy that, in my mind, is one of the greatest reminders of how how I'm to be with the Lord because uh, she follows me everywhere. She is not very obedient, but she knows I'll always love her. She's a sweet little thing, and it's going to be a sad day in our home when that, that little puppy goes on. So when was the last time that you saw something when the three days a year that we have a clear sky in Bakersfield and you say, thank you, Lord, for that. And when it's not clear, you say, thank you that there's at least some level of oxygen that I can breathe here still. (laughs) We should appreciate the sunshine, appreciate the rain. I'm always thankful. And it seems to be that the earlier generation of believers, um, probably who have more of a connection to fathers and grandfathers who were farmers and prayed for rain, I'm thankful to hear older believers say, thank you for the rain. We should appreciate the good things of the world that make our hearts glad. I, I like to do this in counseling. When somebody says, I have nothing to live for, I give them a very simple assignment to have a notebook and begin to list all the things that God does, little blessings every day. And I've seen people come with page after page after page after page. And in one particular case, a number of years ago, as I was reading through this, the last page was smeared. And I said, what's wrong with this page? And, and she said, those are, those are my tears of gratitude because I couldn't believe all that God has done for me. We should appreciate the expression of creativity by mankind as image bearers, art and music. That's an expression. Have you ever seen a monkey try to paint something? And yet we have created for thousands of years where we're driven to create because we're made in the image of God. We should appreciate our very lives. When was the last time you woke up and said, thank you, Lord, that I woke up? I'm thankful for that. We should appreciate the order of the universe that makes living possible. We should appreciate the the institution of marriage. We should appreciate the healthy relationships that we have. They're not all perfect, but we have some good ones. 
We should be thankful for that. We should appreciate the institution of government, which allows us to live in some sort of relative peace and security. There's so much to be thankful for. And and I would say this, that if your lenses view life through even just the lens of common grace, that you're going to be generally a, a more joyful and content person, wouldn't you say? But then we just crank this up even more. Our special grace some practical implications. We should respond to God's special grace through faith with a thankful heart. What day should ever pass that you don't, you don't thank God for opening your eyes to know Christ when your neighbor to the right and to the left is, is walking away from the Lord not knowing Him? We should experience the grace of God in our lives by applying it to our Christian walk. How do you apply grace to your Christian walk? That's, that's a relatively simple concept. What is it about my gratitude toward the Lord for the cross of Christ, for the blood that he shed for me that ought to inform the decision I'm about to make? And I think if you'll ask yourself that question, you will see that the cross and the grace of God begins to infiltrate the way you think, the way you act, the way you are. We should evidence grace in our dealings with others. As those who have received the grace of God, we should show grace and kindness to others. Does every person who has offended you deserve to be forgiven? If they haven't repented, no, they don't. And you have a position to say, until they repent, I cannot restore a relationship. And we understand that. But sometimes there's times to, to just make a judgment call and say, you know what? I'm wiping the slate clean. I don't care whether you repented or not. That's your decision. Why can you do that? Because God wiped our slate clean and enabled us to repent. Right? By the way, just a little side note, in a relationship when you tell somebody you have not repented of certain things, but I'm just going to make a choice to forgive you anyway, you know what sometimes happens is they repent. Not always, but sometimes it does. But we should be gracious with others. Be more patient than you think you ought to be. Be more kind than you think you ought to be. And of course, special grace tells us that we should tell others about the grace of God. I, I think grace is a tremendous, tremendous, powerful tool for evangelism isn't it i mean you can you can wipe aside a lot of arguments that maybe the unbeliever would bring and you can ask a few simple questions do you believe in god no if they say no you know what your next question always is what would you think of a belief in god you know what most people will say actually i kind of think it's kind of a neat concept but i just don't because I don't see evidence of him, which is funny because evidence is everywhere. That's another issue. But when they get to the point of saying, that beginning to argue with you, uh, well, I, you know, I don't think I need... Okay, hang on a minute. What if there was a compassionate, loving, kind God that wants to give you an eternity of bliss, joy, goodness for the rest of time? Why would you not want that? Almost everybody will say, yeah, I kind of like that concept. Well, that's what grace offers. Grace offers all of that to you. And I'm telling you that Christ can do that for you. Now, that's where you run into the category of, uh, is, this, is repentance a work or not? Repentance is not a work. You simply say you need to repent. And by grace, God will save you. Later on, they'll learn that they repented because God gave them grace, not the other way around, Right? I don't think you can describe election and repentance, election and regeneration to an unbeliever successfully. 
they need to be responsible. So, special grace. I think uh, in, the, in the late 90s and early 2000s, there was a big push, and, and I, I think it was good, and we should probably get back to it. There was a big push on uh, the idea of proclaiming the gospel to yourself every day and being more in tune with, uh, with the grace of God and with the faith that you were given and so I, I think that's a tremendous, especially at Thanksgiving, that's a tremendous thing for us to think about. Um, what's the difference between an evangelistic sermon and a sermon filled with the gospel? This is a question I have to ask myself every week. An evangelistic sermon is aimed at the unbeliever. A sermon filled with the gospel is aimed at everyone, right? One of my favorite books I ever read by a, a man named Peter Masters. You've never heard of him? Most likely, he was faithful in the Evangelical Free Church of Rugby, England. I have preached in his pulpit four or five times. But he wrote a little book that impacted me for the rest of my life. It's simply called Believers Need the Gospel. I never forgot that. And I learned that concept from one of the elders in that church when I got there. And he said with his very, very thick Scottish accent, which I can't do, but I could barely understand him and his R's rolled for like four minutes. He said, in the morning service, we preach the gospel. And in the evening, we tell you how to live it. So in the morning, Pastor Steve, you will preach the gospel. Like He wasn't asking my permission. He said, you will preach the gospel. And in the evening, you will tell us how to live it out. And I asked him why he came to that conclusion. And he said, well, Romans 1.15, of course, where Paul told the believers in Rome, I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. So, think about grace. What day should pass when you don't? Amen? All right. Well, let's pray for a moment. Thank you, Lord, for this time we've had. Thank you for um, the concepts of grace, which in just a few minutes are certainly, we haven't even scratched the surface of the glory of grace, but I pray that one impact on every person here, Lord, would be an attitude of thankfulness, that it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And so we are grateful to you this day, Lord. Let us show our gratitude in our worship, in our joy with one another, in our singing, in our listening ears, in our fellowship. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening and being a good audience.